0: Ketamine has a very colorful history, and I also knew that it was a transformational medicine. It creates unique experiences. I call them non-ordinary states of consciousness. I was never planning to have a sponsor for
1: the show unless it was something I really believed in. I've always believed in therapy, and I really believe in BetterHelp.com. Not only do I believe in them, but I'm a client of theirs as well. Registering was simple and you can choose from various packages, some that start as low as $60 a week. You can utilize email, text, instant messaging, or video chat for your counseling. Some packages include unlimited contact. One of the best features is that you can connect with your therapist no matter where you are. How cool is that? If you're out of town, you can still have your regularly scheduled session or connect with your therapist from anywhere in the world. Sign up now at BetterHelp.com slash The Depression Files and get 10% off your first month. That was BetterHelp.com slash The Depression Files. It's professional, accessible, affordable, and convenient. Why not give it a shot? Welcome to The Depression Files, where you'll hear interviews of men who have struggled with depression. We talk about everything related to mental health, From depression and other mental illnesses, to medication, to suicide awareness and prevention, to our current mental health system, and of course, to the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that sharing stories is one of the best ways to chip away at the stigma. I also believe that sharing stories helps to educate those who may know little about mental illnesses while giving hope to those who may be suffering. I'm your host, Al Levin. And I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to the Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. I'm really excited. Today, we are discussing the topic of ketamine. So on the line, I'm excited. We have Dr. Sam Koh. Dr. Koh is a board-certified emergency physician and medical director of Reset Ketamine. He is a fellow of the American College of Emergency Physicians and a member of the American Society of Ketamine Physicians. Dr. Koh, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you, Al. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Yeah, I'm so excited to have you on the show. So if you don't mind sharing with us a little bit of your background as far as getting into the profession of medicine, and I know I read some some information about you and you had some early on experiences with ketamine that were kind of unrelated to what you're currently doing.
0: Yeah, um, you might have come across one of the um, web pages or maybe in, in another interview, but I used to work with rabbits at University of Washington in Seattle, and one of the things that I would actually do there is use. Ketamine on these rabbits because we were doing some procedures for science. And uh, that was when I was, you know, 18, 19 years old back in college. And it's uh, quite serendipitous that something that I did when I was in college has now manifested into something that I'm currently doing. So it's just very fascinating how the things that have occurred to me in the past have um, shown up and reoccurred again in my life.
1: Yeah, it's wild. And what type of medicine did you go into from the start?
0: Um, actually, I initially, my first exposure to medicine was in the emergency room. So that was where I was a, a hospital volunteer. And um, when I entered medical school, I wasn't sure what specialty I wanted. But during the third year of medical school, and that's when we do all of our rotations, surgery, OBGYN, pediatrics, etc. cetera, I remember – Going into the ER for my first rotation, and I felt like, oh my God, this is home. This is what specialty I was destined to do. I just love the variety, the hands on nature, the procedures. And um, emergency medicine is one of the few specialties that actually uses intravenous ketamine for procedural sedation. So I have a lot of experience with this medication.
1: So, did you, so through you did four years of med
0: school. Right and And you choose your specialty within
1: those four years.
0: Correct. So four years of medical school, and the third year is when the doctors do all the various rotations to get a taste of what they really want to go into. And one of those rotations for me was in the emergency uh, department. and I just fell in love with it because, yeah, it just felt um, very much like home. And I think it was because of my initial experience when I was in college. Uh, where I volunteered to be an emergency, uh, a volunteer in the emergency department.
1: Right, and then so then you choose emergency medicine, and you after your four years, then do you do a an internship?
0: Yeah. So what happens is um, you go into medical school, do your rotations, figure out which specialty is going to best align with uh, your interests, and then you have to go into your internship and residency. And my residency was in emergency medicine, and I trained at Loma Linda University. And what's interesting about Loma Linda is that's where a lot of research was done on ketamine because uh, predominantly ketamine was used in the operating room mainly by anesthesiologists. Uh, but some of our faculty members in my residency, they published quite a bit of research on the safety and efficacy of ketamine for use in the emergency department setting, specifically for procedural sedation. And as a result, I had a lot of, you know, even more experience using ketamine just because of the research background of the faculty members.
1: Right, right. And then, um, so after your residency, uh, tell us uh, where you went from the residency.
0: So after my residency was finished, I went out into the community and I worked out at a hospital in Rancho Mirage. It was called Eisenhower Medical Center, and it's a you know world-renowned medical center. It has every specialty available. It has MRIs. It has specialists. And I you know that was my first job, and I worked pretty um, very hard for many years, for a couple years. And what I noticed Al was that you know I was slowly burning out. Medicine um, is very challenging. There's there's a lot of paperwork. There's a lot of electronical medical records. There's a lot of clicking. Uh, there's a lot of rules and regulations and policies. And the practice of medicine just became um, very, very different than what I had imagined. I mean, there was that clinical component of seeing patients, uh, but then the documentation component became burdensome. Um, As a matter of fact, it became so burdensome that a lot of doctors actually – we have something called scribes because the process of entering in the medical information once you see a patient, that actually takes longer than the time spent with a patient. And so we had scribes scribes who would help us. So just uh, many challenges working in the emergency department full time. So I knew I had to change things up.
1: And I know something I read, um, I think you mentioned just kind of having time limits and having to just pump through these patients and get them out the door, you know, do what they need to get fixed Mm -hmm. and be out the door, and that that was a challenge for you as well.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, In the modern practice of medicine, what you'll find is that, you know, if you're a patient, you'll notice that the doctor really doesn't spend a lot of time with you. Uh, they might be in the room for three minutes, four minutes, uh, very brief amounts of time. And one of the pressures of our healthcare system is for doctors to, uh, we call it moving the meat. That's okay. kind of a harsh way to put it, but, uh, basically trying to pump patients through the healthcare system as rapidly as possible and, you know, efficiently. But at the same time, when we're doing that, I feel like we can miss something and, um, you know, in particular, that patient doctor relationship where, you know, it takes time to get to know someone and figure out what's going on. But when there's a pressure to move people through the system, um, you know, something, something goes missing. And I, and I attribute that to many factors, but you know, it might be due to, like, lower reimbursement rates for doctors. So they're like, hey, we're not getting reimbursed as much. Thus, we need to see more patients. Yep. Um, just a lot of different things. But it makes the practice of medicine quite challenging.
1: Yeah, I agree um, 100% from the patient perspective, too. I mean, you get that feeling like you better only have one problem when you go in because they aren't going to have time to talk to you about a second one, if especially if that wasn't mentioned in your appointment. And, and you can't ask really questions cause they want to give you the info and they want to move on and you got your 10 minute time slot, 15, maybe 20 minute time slot to see the doc and then, then you're out of there. And it's interesting. We'll get to more of what you're doing soon, but I know one piece that I'd like to talk about later is just the fact that you really believe in the whole holistic piece of really serving the whole patient, it sounds like, which I think is really cool. So so you got kind of frustrated and you realized it early on in your career, which is awesome, within a couple of years, and actually made a change. So I give you a ton of credit for that. I think some people get kind of stuck in jobs and stuck in roles and think, well, I've put so much time and effort, I I can't do anything different now. But you left the practice, right? And said, hey, I need to do something different. And you took some time off and
0: time away from the medical world. Yeah. So there was a point when I was practicing medicine um you know 2 or 3 years out and like the all the challenges i had mentioned and i literally said hey maybe maybe being a doctor isn't for me maybe this isn't my thing this isn't what i signed up for and i was on the verge actually had a um a letter of resignation that was right next to my door ready to be delivered to the to my boss and you know i would look at that letter of resignation and contemplate is today, the day is today, the day that I submitted. Wow. But what I, yeah, but what I found was I thought, Hey, maybe there's another creative solution. You know, maybe I don't have to throw out everything, you know, cause it was quite a bit of time investment. So I actually cut down my hours. I said, Hey, you know, this full time work is not going to work for me. I need something needs to change. And I cut down my hours significantly And started actually working at a couple of other different hospitals. And I think, you know, seeing different cultures, seeing a different environment, making changes, um, you know, and taking time to really heal myself. And that included things like taking coach training. That included things like uh, a lot of seminars and workshops, reading books, you know, traveling um, internationally and just really discovering you know what life is about, and what my life purpose is, and I think once that became clear to me, Al, then things shifted, and I knew what I needed to do.
1: That's awesome. So, one question I have for you is: you you literally on the on your website, on your bio, you mentioned that you spent time getting healthy. Uh, so. Do you really – I mean do you think you were at a point where maybe there was some depression even happening or anxiety from the job or or was it not that type of health? It was just being – enjoying life more and, and finding a better purpose?
0: Yeah. I think if I had to put a word on it, it would be burnout. Okay. Right. And that's I – don't, I don't believe that is a DSM. Actually, I think it might be in the latest DSM criteria but regardless, burnout is – Quite common in yeah. the medical field. I think uh, there was a study that showed up to fifty-five percent of physicians have suffer from burnout.
1: Yep, um, and um, I have often heard it uh, used almost synonymously with compassion fatigue or secondary
0: trauma. Right. I mean, I mean, I've seen as an emergency physician. Now, I mean, I've seen some intense things and very traumatic things. I've seen car accidents i've seen you know gunshots i've seen amputations i've seen all sorts of things that normal people do not see right and i would say you know there is a, a component of trauma that gets incorporated but going back to the word burnout you know i think it does include i would say it's probably a mixture of PTSD, it's mm-hmm. probably, you know, a little bit of a sprinkle of depression, uh, maybe a cup full of anxiety, right. maybe a little bit of OCD, perfectionism, yep. um, compassion fatigue. I think all of those words um, definitely play a role into burnout Right. as right. a physician.
1: Yep, absolutely. And, you know, I also want to mention you talk about all of the things you've seen, which is a lot. But not only did you see them, I mean, you are hands on with them, I'm guessing, and in Mm -hmm. incredibly challenging situations where you're, I don't know, I would imagine just kind of running on adrenaline sometimes when all of a sudden a gunshot wound comes in and you got to figure everything out and you're just moving and moving and moving. And then I wonder if that kind of hits you sometimes after the fact, like a couple hours later, a day or two later, like, oh, my God, this guy almost died in my hands or may Mm. have died.
0: Yeah, I think what's uh, really fascinating about working in the emergency department is, yeah, I will see that trauma or the young kid who, you know, has passed away, and then I go and tell their parents, "Hey, you know, your 18-year-old son has died." And what's crazy, Al, is within the next, after I do that encounter and speak with the patient's family, who's maybe you know, their family member has just passed away. Yeah, the emergency department doesn't stop. Right. So there's patients in the waiting room, and they're they're everyone is coming in, and so within the next, I'll you know I might go outside take a two minute three minute breather, but I'm right back in there. Yeah. And so there really isn't time to process these uh, traumatic experiences, and I think, you know, now that I'm talking about it, uh, there was there was an accumulation right. of um, these experiences that have, you know, probably really hadn't been processed. Yeah. And I think it just kind of came to um, a head where I'm like, okay, this is, you know, overwhelming. This is too much. And I think the the way that, you know, I can't speak for all physicians, but for me is just, um, you know, you build a wall around your heart. Yeah. Right? Because if my heart is open and having empathy and just, you know, every – sad and traumatic moment my you know I would be crying every day right and so what happens is you have to develop um you know a shell right uh, a wall and the wall can protect us but at the same time it keeps people out
1: yeah it keeps people out and then and are you is that wall there all at all times right when you're dealing with your own family members who are maybe ill or going through something and you continue to have this wall that's built up around your heart like you mentioned and and it's always there and you're kind of desensitized
0: right yeah i mean a lot of that you can bring that home i mean yeah when when we experience these things it's very easy to you know bring in that same mental state it's yeah. like oh yeah i'm now a doctor and i have this experience and you know going around and trying to diagnose and solve everyone's problems right, when right. they when they never came uh looking for it
1: have, so yeah
0: there was a there was a lot of um a lot of healing that needed to be done yeah. for sure. Well, it's this. awesome
1: that you were able to face that and deal with it and and not just do what a lot of men do and, and others, um, women too, but um, not just put your head down and say, oh, I'm a man. I'm going to tough it out. I you know, I went to med school. This is what I'm supposed to do and just grit it out until, you know, I have an ER surgeon who I interviewed probably over a year ago now. He's on one of the episodes and he, he was three months inpatient. Uh, program for his PTSD around being an ER surgeon. And wow. uh, and another example I have is a firefighter who was so desensitized. He said he knew there was a problem when he was in the middle of a fire and actually felt like pulling out a card table and setting up a table and playing cards with his team. <laughs> like he knew, okay, this is not okay. Something is going on here. Um, wow. And then the the last connection I want to make only because I'm an educator and I've really been pushing for trying to get a create a better system of support of mental health supports for educators is something similar to what you said. Like teachers don't have a time to, to put down their work either and decompress or process what has just happened. You know, they may be dealing with a suicidal kid and I know of a teacher who literally was ripping a scissors out of a kid's hand who had it at his neck. And then it's like, okay, well we got an administrator in there or a behavior person got the scissors away. Time to keep teaching And it's like, wow, I just went through this majorly traumatic thing and now I've got 30 kids to tend to, to finish up my, you know, second grade math lesson or whatever it may be.
0: Yeah. And, oh my God, that's so, actually, as you were speaking, um, about these traumatic experiences that we face, it reminds me, actually, we had a a doctor who died by suicide, uh, about, I don't know. Let's say I think a month ago, oh a couple weeks, goodness. very, very so recently. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, and he was a trauma surgeon. Um, He's probably been practicing for probably 30 years. Wow. And you know, I think he was in his uh, late 60s. And you know, there's not a lot of details about it, and it's kind of um, you know, it's not publicized. Yeah. Uh, a lot, but you know, these things get built up. And I just think about this trauma surgeon who has probably seen so much and just held it in. And everyone looks to him as, hey, you're the leader. Hey, we can always trust, you know, that doctor. And, you know, he's a human, right? He's a human being. And these experiences um, will impact people, uh, men. And I, I love that your focus is on you know, talking with men who are dealing with this because, you know, in our society, as you're, I'm sure you're very familiar with, is it's not encouraged for men to speak up and say, "Hey, I'm struggling." Right. It's not really, you know, something that we celebrate, um, at least historically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, we'll make help that change. So, you took all this time off. I read some really cool stuff you had in your bio, like you mentioned you met shamans in the Amazon. you walked on fire, you did some leadership programs. and then you mentioned you just you came back rejuvenated and and you it sounds like you kind of found a new purpose
0: Yes, um, I had to do some healing, Al. I mean, there was this uh, wall around my heart, and it needed to be healed and you know, there's that saying, physician, heal thyself. Right. And I really took that to heart and I said, okay, what what do I need to do? And so I needed to, you know, get support. I needed to ask for help. And that looked to like, you know, seeing shamans in Peru. That looked like um, going to leadership courses and transformational courses where, you know, we face fears and, you know, walking on hot coals. Uh, that looked like, you know, just going to, um, you know, speaking courses and just a lot of this non-traditional type of education yeah. that rejuvenated me. And then I looked back at my life during this time of rejuvenation and the question that came to me, Al, was what can I do? What is something unique that Sam Co can offer to the world that only he can do or very few people can do? And the insight that I had was working with um, ketamine. And I know that it is a, you know, I had a lot of experience experience with it in the emergency department setting in college with the rabbits. And I also knew that it was a transformational medicine. It creates unique experiences. I call them non ordinary states of consciousness and it catalyzes. Um, people, people's lives so that they have this activation energy. So, yeah, I think, um, there was a quote, Mark Twain says, uh, the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. Right. That and is really for me, cool. yeah. And for me, that why was, uh, you know, starting up reset ketamine in Palm Springs.
1: That's awesome. So you came back, rejuvenated, you started that up, and I, yeah, so let's dive into this topic of ketamine. Ketamine, you know, in the world of mental health, it sounds like it's just been a a breakthrough. So first of all, I want to make sure I understand, I often hear ketamine being referred to as the exact same thing as MDMA or ecstasy is it the same thing as the, the good old party drug that people know of from the rave parties and such?
0: Um, great question. Ketamine has a very colorful history and, you know, some people think it, it is a party drug. Um, it may be known as special K and it was actually used as, you know, in the club setting. So it does have that history. So that's, you know, just to put that out there, a- and now, that as far must as MD- have been
1: um, in pill form. I'm guessing.
0: I'm, i believe in, in the, the. I believe in the clubs. I think they were using it in a different form. I th- I believe it might have either been um, like powder form. Okay. Uh, or pills, but just to go back to the MDMA MDMA question, it's not MDMA. MDMA, uh, aka ecstasy, is a different drug. Uh, ketamine is a different type of medicine and it works on the NMDA receptors and the glutamate neurotransmitter, but MDMA is working on a different, uh, different mechanism.
1: Okay. Okay. And can you tell us a bit of the history of ketamine? Cause it's been around for a while, right. And used as an, I, and I'm a little unclear here if it was primarily an anesthetic or if it was a pain, if it was to reduce pain during procedures or what?
0: Um, the history of ketamine is fascinating. Like I've studied and researched quite a bit of it. It was invented in 19, in the 1950s by a, uh, American chemist named Calvin Stevens. He was working at Wayne State University in Michigan. And, um, there was another drug actually prior to ketamine. It was, uh, called phencyclidine, also known as PCP. So, Fencyclidine was invented by Park Davis Pharmaceutical Company as a medicine to be used in, uh, in the operating room as a general anesthetic, but it had all these side effects. So the person would receive fencyclidine, PCP, and they would have hallucinations, and it would just last for hours after the surgery was completed. So they approached uh, the chemist, Dr. Stevens, and said, hey, can you take this drug and make it so it has less side effects? And he invented ketamine. It was called uh, CI-581 at the time. Tested it on a bunch of rats and uh, monkeys. And he said, hey, this seems to work with a rapid effect onset and then a rapid um, recovery rate. And so after it had shown that it could be used in animals, they tested it on humans. And um, they said, hey, this is safe. Uh, The humans they tested it on, they were experiencing these kind of uh, dreamy-like states, floating-like states. And they said, hey, this is a great medicine that can be used for um, procedural sedation or in the operating room. It'll reduce their pain. It'll disconnect their mind and body. And so let's see if we can get it approved. And in 1970, the FDA did approve ketamine for use as a general anesthetic and for use as a um, medicine to reduce pain, during diagnostic and surgical procedures.
1: Wow. And when used as a general anesthetic, in my mind, and I may be off on this, but I think of a general anesthetic as really knocking somebody completely out.
0: Um, Yeah, yes. And um, ketamine can do that. I would say it really depends upon the dose. Okay. So, you know, if someone gets 0.5 milligrams per kilogram or if they get 5 milligrams per kilogram, uh, depending upon how big of a dose, it can, you know, quote, knock people out. And what's fascinating about ketamine is that it is currently the most commonly used drug in the world for sedation. And so this includes countries, you know, like um, Africa, um, a lot of third world countries use ketamine because it's very effective in reducing pain while they're doing painful procedures. But at the same time, it protects the patient's respirations and cardiovascular system. So, a lot of these other general anesthetics, for example, propofol, um, it'll cause people to stop breathing. It'll cause people's blood pressures to go down. And uniquely, ketamine does not do this for the most part. It still can, you know, have these other side effects, but for the most part, it's quite safe, and um, you know, when it's used appropriately.
1: Right. So. So it had been used for sedation and for pain reduction. And when did it suddenly become used uh, for any kind of depression types of or mental yeah. mental illnesses?
0: Yeah, great question. So uh, once the FDA approved it in 1970, it, well that's the original FDA indication. And, and that so, was
1: only for emergency use and operating use, right, uh, for the two purposes uh, we talked about? Actually, right?
0: it was... Actually, it was mainly for the anesthesi- uh for mainly for the operating room. Okay, gotcha. So from 1970 until probably you know the 90s, it was used mainly in the operating room. Okay. Um, although one fascinating thing is um, in Vietnam, actually, they were using it in the battlefield frequently because they were, uh, you know, if a soldier got shot, instead of giving uh, receiving morphine, which can slow down someone's respirations, if they received ketamine, their pain would be reduced, but they'd still be able to function and walk back. But after that, some people were noticing, hey, you know, some of my patients, you know, maybe the ketamine is helping. And they found there was a group of researchers. um, Where were they at? I think they were at uh, Yale. Dr. Berman, they published the first randomized placebo controlled trial and they compared ketamine IV with, I believe, normal saline. And it was blinded, so neither the researchers nor the uh, research participants knew what they were receiving. And they gave them ketamine. I believe they gave them six treatments, uh, 0.5 milligrams per kilogram over a period of 40 minutes. And when they compared the um, I, the depression score, and I'm not sure whether they were using a Beck depression score or a different type, but what they found was there was a dramatic difference in the patients who had received ketamine in reducing their depression.
1: Wow. That you um, said that was in 2000 ish.
0: That was in 2000 when that first paper was published. Okay. And after that, more papers were being published and they were saying, Hey, how is ketamine working? you know what is this what's happening with this NMDA receptor and blocking this glutamate neurotransmitter and so more studies were being done but ketamine was generic by this point now meaning that there wasn't a lot of research funding available to do research the majority of research that's done is done by pharmaceutical companies who are cutting coming with a with a new drug and the reason being is you know if they're able to create a new drug then they're going to be able to have a patent for you know twenty years or so. Right. But since ketamine was generic, that financial in- incentive wasn't there. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So after that first study came out, some anesthesiologists and psychiatrists uh, they were like, "Hey, you know, this is there's some small case reports and these really small studies." Um, and then they continued doing research. And um, I'm not sure when the first ketamine clinic opened. I think it was probably if I had to take a guess it was probably in 2010 roughly and probably started with one or two ketamine clinics and since then it's just progressively increased and I would say now if I had to take an estimate anywhere from 100 to maybe 200 ketamine clinics in the United States
1: wow so you're still pretty early on in the in the whole shift Um, yourself having a clinic going
0: since. uh, When did yours start? Uh, We started April of 2018.
1: Okay. Fantastic. So clinics, this is interesting. So anesthesiologists would use it off-label, correct? So it's Which I believe just means it's using it for a different purpose than what it was actually made for. Is that the best? Yes. Is that an accurate definition of off-label?
0: That's perfect. Yeah. There's on-label and then which would be for you know general anesthesia and then these diagnostic surgical procedures, and then off-label, which would be for depression and PTSD and chronic pain.
1: And, and so then if it's being used off-label, is are there any kind of legal parameters or anything like that? I, I always wondered myself when I heard early on about anesthesiologists using ketamine for patients with depression. I always wondered... They, they don't, many of them, it didn't seem, had any kind of training around mental illnesses or anything like that. And I know you may not either. But so, is there, are there any kind of limitations or requirements legally for an anesthesiologist to, to deliver this ketamine off label, meaning it's not for what it was created for, and not having a, a mental health background?
0: Let's see. I'm going to break that question down into (laughs) two parts. So the first one is, can a doctor use a medicine off-label? And then the answer for that is yes. So once no
1: kind of requirement. I mean, they could use it for whatever they want to, essentially, huh?
0: Yes. Okay. Yes. So let me give you an example of that. Um, Okay, let's see. uh, A urologist. Let's say someone comes in to see the urologist, and they're saying, hey, I have a problem with premature ejaculation. For example, and the urologist—not not the best who,
1: example for a podcast. That's <laughs> mostly for men. <laughs> this is okay. the first
0: one that comes. This is the first one that comes to mind as uh, when no I was problem. in problem school. Let's roll and with it. I, yeah, I remember the uh, urologist. This is actually a real example from medical school. I remember the urologist wrote a prescription for this patient. It was a young guy, and uh, he wrote it for uh, Prozac, Sertraline. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. Hey, you know, I asked the urologist, why are you doing this? And he said, well, one of the side effects of Prozac is it causes anorgasmia, which is the doctor word for inability to have orgasms. And so he said, you know, I'm going to prescribe this patient an SSRI, Prozac, and use it off label purpose because he doesn't have depression, but I want to use it for a different purpose because I know that the side effects will help this person. Wow. Wow. Okay. So this, you know, this would be an example of off-label use. And yep. one of the things about the FDA is that yes, as a physician, once a be- once a drug becomes FDA approved, we are frequently allowed to use any drug for off-label purposes. Gotcha. And there's many examples Al. So, uh, another more probably uh, more common example would be taking a baby aspirin every day for uh, cardiovascular health. Yes. It's actually the FDA indication of aspirin is as a pain reliever and fever reducer. It's never been FDA approved to help pre- prevent cardiovascular risk, but we know that it works. Yeah, and we've seen the studies. It's dirt cheap. So yeah, everyone, you know, not everyone. The people who need it will take a baby aspirin. Yeah. Okay, so that's part one. Part two of your question is- I know, I'm sorry to
1: interrupt, but another example is I was on Trazodone, which is a known antidepressant for sleep medicine. And I think many use it for sleep.
0: That's a great example. Exactly. Trazodone has no FDA indication for insomnia. However, doctors still have the ability to use it because that's one of the side effects. Yeah.
1: Okay, awesome. Part 2 of the
0: question. Um part 2 of the question. So, should an anesthesiologist who has no mental health background be administering ketamine? And this is this be this is very political actually in that uh, the question, I mean, it's really fascinating because this is still a lot of gray area. You know, ketamine is very cutting edge. Yep. Uh, there's not a lot of regulation in who should be administering it because the anesthesiologist will say, well, because uh, there's, I would say, mainly like two to three in general uh, groups of specialties who use ketamine, specifically off-label for mood disorders, and that's going to be anesthesiology. It's going to be psychiatry. Uh, And probably a little, a handful of emergency medicine. And so the anesthesiologists are, you know, administering ketamine, off-label, and the psychiatrists will argue, well, you guys have no training in mental health. You have no training in depression, PTSD, OCD. You know, why are you guys doing this? But what's happening, Al, is psychiatrists are actually administering IV ketamine as well. And so the anesthesiologists will argue, well, who taught you how to use ketamine IV? (laughs) Right right? How do you know how to monitor someone's vital signs and, you know, start an IV? And so there is this kind of political positioning going on where, you know, one group of physician is saying, hey, you have no experience administering ketamine. The other group saying you don't have any experience with mental health. Now, as an emergency physician, I'm biased because um, I feel like our specialty is pretty unique in that, You know, I do deal with uh, mental health patients in the ER setting. I mean, I see patients who are suicidal. I see patients who suffer from substance abuse. I see patients with panic attacks. Um, I see patients who, um, you know, all sorts of mood disorders. And actually, you know, one of the requirements of uh, being an emergency physician at certain hospitals is the ability to put someone on a 5150. And I don't know what it's called in uh, different states, but in California, it's a psychiatric hold. So as an emergency physician, we frequently deal with psychiatric emergency situations and psychiatric patients. Um, In addition, emergency medicine, we, you know, work with procedural sedation. So we have experience using uh, ketamine in particular for sedation. So I feel like, you know, I'm biased, but I feel like we're kind of uniquely positioned to understand both the mental health side as well as the, um, you know, sedation side or uh, of using ketamine.
1: Yeah. No, that makes sense to me as well. I I wonder if some mental health folks may say that, Well, and I don't know how much training ER docs get in mental health itself. And I think it's, like you said, it's so important for ER docs to understand mental health because so many people come in. Uh, who are going through a panic attack who may believe their heart is going crazy right or that they're they're about to die when really it is anxiety and a panic attack or people who show up with migraines or stomach aches all the time unexplained and really it could be extreme anxiety or some other mental illness going on but i i hear from mental health advocates some say more er docs need more training around mental health but i think you know that's a whole different topic i think you have a brilliant point that that you guys administer the ketamine and so forth and you deal with many patients around mental illness and mental health but but Um, actually oh go ahead
0: um, just one thing to uh, go back to that is what we'll find is that the anesthesiologist, if they are administering IV ketamine, they're not taking over the psychiatric care. They're not adjusting medications. They're not doing psychotherapy. Right. Um, they're simply providing ketamine. And so even with our patients, um, you know, at in Palm Springs, I'm not, oh, yeah, let's start you on, you know, Prozac or let's start you on, et cetera. It's like, no, uh, we really need you uh, to see your psychiatrist Um, we're acting as a, you know, consultant basically providing a very unique niche service. But, um, yeah, I think it's really important for, you know, any ketamine provider, especially if they don't have the mental health training. Uh, yeah, you have to partner with psychotherapists. You have to partner with psychiatrists. Um, I think it's really a team effort rather than, one particular group saying hey i'm just going to take care of everything and i i'm going to do the anesthesia i'm going to do the psychiatry i'm going to do the therapy it's like no i mean come on give me a break no one i mean some no one is that skilled and this is really a team effort rather than one person you know taking on the care of every single you know psychiatric issue
1: right right and, and a lot of people these days are talking a lot more about collaborative care and really making sure that all of those different pieces of your care are uh, in touch with one another. And maybe, I don't know, if maybe it's a family doctor who's making sure that the psychiatrists and psychologists are speaking and then maybe the emergency doc like yourself who's delivering ketamine to the patient as well so that there is this team all working in alliance for the patient.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's, that team-based approach is so important.
1: And, and it's like you said, I mean, everybody's got their own specialty, and, and you know that, you know, you're going really deep into the ketamine. You're going to know ketamine better than any of the other doctors, most likely, on a, on one team. And hopefully they would come to you to to discuss the, the ketamine effects and so forth. So um, that is uh, – that's really cool. So you – what are the different purposes at your clinic – again, it's called Reset Ketamine – that you – um, administer ketamine
0: for. I would say the majority are treatment-resistant depression, okay. uh, severe anxiety, panic attacks, a uh, lot of PTSD, complex PTSD, and then uh, some OCD. That's on the mood disorder side, and then we also have you know chronic pain patients, um, some with fibromyalgia, some with trigeminal neuralgia. Um, some, what's something called complex regional pain syndrome. So those are more of the frequent uh, types of patients that I see in their diagnoses.
1: Right. You know, I forgot, I wanted to ask you, you we've been talking a lot about the use of it off label, but ketamine, or at least S-ketamine, has actually been approved just in the past, what, two years or so for treatment-resistant depression, correct?
0: Yes. So yeah, that's an interesting story because what happened was, um, you know, the pharmaceutical companies, we had touched upon this briefly and they want to create new drugs. They want to create drugs that they can patent. So they saw, Hey, there's this generic drug, ketamine. Let's see, how can, what can we do to patent this generic drug? And, um, they said, okay, let's. Uh, ketamine is made up of two isomers, S-ketamine and R-ketamine. Uh, S is basically the letter acids for stands for uh, sinister, which means left-handed in Greek, and R, um, R-ketamine, which is more of the right-handed. So ketamine is composed of two components, left and right, aka S and R, and that's generic racemic ketamine. Johnson and Johnson said, hey, what can we do? Let's isolate it. They isolated S-ketamine and started doing the same trials. Um, they were like, hey, can just S-ketamine be effective in treating depression? And they found um, at, they had a bunch of money. So they were able to run it through the FDA phase one, phase two, phase three trials, uh, specifically S-ketamine and using um, a special nasal spray. And they were able to get it approved. But uh, there's a lot of pushback on this, Al, because when the FDA approved it, they found, when you look really deeply into the studies, that the nasal spray, esketamine, was not effective, was not significantly better than placebo nasal spray. Really? It was maybe, I mean, it was not statistically significant. And, but still the FDA approved it. And I think their reasoning was, hey, there's a lot of patients out there with treatment-resistant depression, suicidality. We need to give them something, even if it's really, you know, a marginal benefit. Let's get it out there. And uh, it was approved. But what's interesting is, although it's approved in the United States, a lot of other countries aren't approving it. They're saying, hey, it's, you know, we already have the generic version here. So, you know, we're not going to cover this drug.
1: Right. And and that's a big difference, right? If something is off-label versus... It's FDA approved. Is right. the insurance payments for that medication? Yes,
0: yes. Right. So the insurance companies, since it's FDA approved, their insurance companies are required to cover it. Um, gotcha. But what's fascinating is one spray of the esketamine, uh, this Bravado, is like six hundred or eight hundred dollars, and and that's just a one time thing. And they have to do it multiple times, uh, you know, for several months. So you know, I'm just, I'm not really, um, a big fan of the nasal spray. I, I think we just have the generic version. It's great. And, you know, but I can see where Johnson and Johnson are coming from. I mean, that's kind of their purpose. Yeah. Um, as far as like, Hey, what can we do to increase profits? And so we'll see this with other drugs. I mean, well, what's another example? Like Lexapro, uh, right. Lexapro, you know, it's, I believe it's citalopram was coming up. It was going, it's you know, the 20 years had expired, and then they're like, oh, let's make s right? a.k.a. Lexapro, and let's get another 20 years. Right. And so that process is called evergreening uh, in a way of like taking a drug that's generic or about to become generic, making modifications to make the patent, create a new patent to make it last longer.
1: Right. Wow, that is really interesting. Now, is there a reason they decided this gets a bit scientific, Um, But a reason they chose S-ketamine versus
0: the Um, R-ketamine? There were some – yeah, there were some small studies that showed that S-ketamine had a stronger binding affinity to the NMDA receptor. And they were like, oh, yeah, since S-ketamine is a stronger uh, binding capacity, let's pick this one. Okay. But what's fascinating, Al, you asked this question, is that another study – um, this is all on rodent models, by the way. Another study showed that the R-ketamine was the one that, although it has a weaker binding capacity, uh, they found that in the rat model of depression, and of course we don't know if they have depression or not, but just based upon that model, they found that the um, R-ketamine was the one that was more effective wow. in um, having this antidepressant effect.
1: Wow, okay. That is really interesting. So can you help me understand... One of the things I had been hearing in the mental health world, at least, was that when ketamine became approved by the FDA, the S-ketamine, apparently it kind of opened up an entire new classification of drugs. So, for example, there are the SSRIs, the SNRIs, and just a few other classifications of the antidepressants. And I have heard and would like a better understanding of the fact that people say ketamine is like a whole new classification, which may open up the doors to even more research and more possibilities Mm. down the line of treating depression.
0: Yes. Um, And what they're referring to is mechanism of action or, you know, the uh, how a drug works. So SSRIs works on the serotonin system. Uh, SNRIs work on the serotonin and the norepinephrine system. Um, Haldol, aka Halperidol, H- 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 works on the uh, dopamine receptors. So the fact with ketamine is it's working on glutamate, which is a different neurotransmitter in the brain. And so when we say, hey, it's opening up a new c- category, it's saying, hey, these uh, glutamate modulators, such as ketamine and esketamine. ketamine, Uh, Let's do more research because maybe there's something that we're missing in depression and PTSD and anxiety. Maybe it's not simple Hey, you have low serotonin. Let's give you more serotonin and you're gonna be good Um, Because you know, these are just models Al, like I don't there's been studies that show that You'll take the you know, cuz the hypothesis or the belief is that someone has depression. Oh, why do they have depression? Oh, their serotonin levels are low okay, let's fix that by increasing the serotonin using the SSRIs. But what's fascinating is some people feel worse after the SSRIs. And it's like, well, why Why would that be, right? We had this model. So the serotonin isn't strong, isn't high enough. So I just want to push back a little bit. The human mind is so complex that to boil it down to a simple serotonin thing or a dopamine thing or even a glutamate, I think we're – you know, we're reducing the complexity of what it means to be a human being, right? I don't think you can say, "Oh, it's this one neurotransmitter," and by modifying this one little thing, we're going to fix, you know, someone's issue with depression. And I think this is where the, you know, the bio, i call it the biopsychosocial model of medicine—which uh, I learned from my medical school, University of Rochester—is you actually need to look at so many factors. You need to look at the biology need to look at the psychology. You need to look at the sociology. And I add a fourth component, the spirituality. And you need to look at this holistic approach in depression because it's not just a simple uh, mechanism of, oh, yeah, serotonin. Oh, yeah, dopamine. Um, I think you have to take a step back and really look at the whole person.
1: Yeah, I think that's a brilliant point. And I know that there are a few different types of depression people talk about, like dysthymia or low-grade depression, um, chronic low grade depression or manic or manias and and so forth, but I wonder if there are even many more different types of depression out there because, like you said, sometimes it re- reacts different people react differently to different medicines that are doing the same thing. Um, I had two bouts of major depression; they were very different, very different, and for different reasons, one was clear it was Situational, you know, I was put into a, a, a high-stress position, a high-leadership role, and it was a lot of stress, and I had a five-year-old, three-year-old, and two newborns at home, and I knew why depression hit. And my my next bout, I had no reason. Like, I had a great review from a new boss, and things were going well. The kids were a little older. Things were smooth, and I went in a worse major depression. So I really wonder, and like you said, I think it is so complex and unfortunately, that's the reason we have all these antidepressants where it's like, okay, we'll try this one. It's essentially a guessing game and see what happens in four to six weeks. And if that doesn't work, we'll try another one and wait four to six weeks. And it's it's kind of horrendous, which is why I love the fact that ketamine is now available as another option. And I hope that there is more research done to to continue this because it's just it's so crazy to think, There's so med, the medical field is so advanced in so many ways. And then depression, it's like, well, good luck. You you may be suicidal, but we're not really sure what to give you.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, wow. That, you know, I think medicine is really good in certain areas. Like if someone is having a heart attack, um, you're going to go to the emergency room. They're going to take a look at your coronary arteries and put in a stent in. You're going to have your life saved. If you have a dislocated shoulder, we need to get that joint back in. Let's put that joint back in. Um, There are certain things that medicine is awesome for, in particular allopathic medicine for. So um, it it definitely has its role. But, you know, mental health is very challenging. And I think it's challenging because, you know, this gets to the question of the human mind and consciousness. Right. And and the human mind is very complex, Al. I mean – we we humans like to think we're incredibly intelligent and smart and we figured everything out. But I think there's many things we don't know. And I think the human mind and consciousness and depression, I mean, we have clues and we have ideas and hypotheses, but I don't know if we are going to know every single detail of how, you know, how does depression actually form and what's actually happening with, you know, anxiety and we know what's going on. And I think we have clues and models, but I don't know if we're going to be able to understand it. Uh, we can look at a bone, we can look at an X-ray, we can say that's understandable to me. Right. But sometimes with the human mind, something as complex as that, um, it's challenging. And you know, I just want to put let the listeners out there know, like, hey, they're doing their best. Yeah. You know, they they might be the psychiatrist you go see. They're going to try medicine, and. You know, it might be 20, 30% effective in certain patients. But for those 20 to 30%, it'll be helpful. May not yeah. be helpful for you. And I think that's the thing. It, it can be a guessing game sometimes. And that's okay in that we don't know, right? I don't know exactly what medicine is going to work for every single person. And ketamine is like that too. It's not 100% effective. Right. Um, it's not for everyone. And I wouldn't want everyone to say, oh, it's a miracle drug and ketamine cured me. And it's not, that's not a reality. Um, It's going to work for some people and it's not going to work for others. And I'd say, you know, I don't want to discount the medical field. I think we are all trying our best given our current situations and the complexity of what it means to be a human being.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And, And I appreciate that perspective, especially if mine sounded too negative. I just, I just know from the patient perspective, dealing with depression, Man, it is really frustrating to be in that situation um, and to be possibly even suicidal and, and to really, you know, to have to kind of wait on something. But like you said, obviously, they're trying the best. It is so complex. The mind in itself is so complex. But then you mention all these other social components and so many pieces involved in, in the whole picture. It's incredibly complex. So let's get back to your clinic Take us through how somebody connects with you and what it's going to look like. Let's say I reach out and say, "Hey, I'm, I've uh, have treatment resistant depression," meaning I believe that I've tried two different, at least two different medications that have not worked for my depression. And then I reach out to you and take us from there.
0: Um, so I have four four stages of ketamine treatments. The first one is going to be preparation. And that's where we have the patient prepare their mind and body. And that looks like uh, journaling, looks like meditating. It looks like avoiding social media, decreasing the amount of news, um, eating a healthier diet, getting more sleep. Uh, So we have a list of uh, guidelines in our preparation stage. Next is the intention. So I ask my patients, what is your intention for this ketamine treatment? What is your goal? What is the outcome? And so I really want the patient to focus on that. And they might say something like, oh, you know, I want to let this trauma go. Or they might say, I want to have more peace. Or, you know, I just want to be uplifted. Or I want to um, feel more joy or contentment. So that's the intention. The next phase is the experience of the ketamine itself. Having a ketamine infusion is very, very unique, um, no two experiences will be the same. And you might go online and read about oh, it was like X, Y, and Z for me. But each person is going to have a different experience based upon uh, their unique history. So during the experience, I have my patients really focus on what is that experience for them, really get in there um, and just experience the experience. Lastly is the integration phase. And that looks like talking. And the integration occurs after the ketamine treatment is over. That looks like making changes necessary that you might need to change. And it might look like quitting that job or talk having a discussion with, you know, a family member or friend that you just, you've just you just been putting off. Or it might look like, you know, stopping TV or reducing alcohol use or whatever it may be. Like, how can I create healthier choices in my life? So those are the four stages Broadly of how we do it at Reset Ketamine. Uh, Logistically, though, you'd reach out to me, um, fill out the uh, intake form where we would go over, you know, you put in your medicines, your allergies, your surgeries, etc. Then we schedule a consultation, which is typically done uh, virtually or over the telephone to make sure you're a good candidate. Not everyone is a candidate. There's certain, you know, medications and certain past medical history or family history that... You know we would exclude patients from receiving ketamine. And then afterwards, we would review your medical records from your psychiatrist or your primary medical doctor. and assuming everything is clear, then we would bring you in, bring you in for the infusions. And during the treatment, you'd come in, uh, fill out some paperwork. The patient would be connected to a monitor because um, you know it's we'd like to do it safely. So uh, we do continuous, oxygen monitoring, continuous cardiac rhythm monitoring, blood pressure monitoring, respiratory rate monitoring, just to be as safe as possible. Uh, ketamine is a safe drug, but I believe it should be done in a monitored setting by someone who has experience uh, with using IV ketamine. And then, yeah, the patient will sit back in, the, in a really comfortable chair. Um, their eyes are typically closed. We want them to have an internal experience and then uh, for if it's for treatment-resistant depression, the time is about 40 minutes, 45 minutes for the treatment itself. And then after that treatment is completed, the patient will you know, remain for another 15, 20 minutes kind of laying down, sitting back in the chair just for the ketamine to metabolize um, through their body. And then we can get them up, make sure they can drink water, use the restroom if you need to. And then uh, we let them go home, but of course, we don't want them to drive because the ketamine is still in their effect. So we usually, you know, a friend or family member will pick the patient up. And so that's how one session looks like. We typically do uh, two to three sessions uh, in a week. So uh, we do, the studies have shown about six six initial sessions uh, have the most amount of effect. And so we'll schedule maybe two a week for three weeks, maybe three a week for two weeks, depending upon the time frame. And then afterwards, we'll schedule patients for boosters as needed. So they might come in once a month. They might come in once every six weeks. It'll really depend upon how their symptoms are doing.
1: Okay, awesome. So a couple questions. The it It is obvious that you are about holistic medicine um, with all of the work you talked about, pre and post especially. Um, you talked about some journaling and things before prior to the ketamine infusion, how long of a period is that for typically are you talking a week where the, you want them to do these things around meditation and journaling and so forth or is it a yes. month it's
0: typically one week okay. so actually um for the listeners I will uh, create a I have um a, a web page for them so it'll be reset dot com slash the depression files and they can hop on there and download the preparation guidelines just so they know what it looks like. But awesome. what I found is that if – you know, that week before the ketamine treatment is – will impact their experience. So, for example, if, they're, if they watch a horror movie Friday the 13th or something the night before and they get an IV ketamine treatment, it's going to impact their ketamine experience. And right. it might be scary. And so I really want to caution patients that, you know, the experience and, you know – how how their environment looks like and you know all of these other things that you think don't impact you are going to impact you during the ketamine treatment. So I really want it to be as peaceful, um, as calm as possible. And I usually tell them, you know, a week of preparation.
1: Okay. Sounds good. And during the ketamine infusion, you mentioned they they're in a comfortable chair and they close their eyes. Are you or is somebody at their side the entire time? I know you mentioned monitoring. Are you at their side, and and is there a conversation happening, or are they just completely silent? Is there music, mm. or what's that environment? Good
0: question. Like? Good question. Yeah. So we're we're by their side the entire time. So they're never left alone. Um, either myself or uh, one of my assistants, we're continuously watching them. And we really want people to have an internal experience. So we provide our patients eye shades. So we want them to close their eyes um, and actually have a playlist that I've created for my patients. And yeah, they'll lean listen, or excuse me, they'll lean back. We'll put on the Bluetooth headphones and um, you know they'll eyes closed, music on. Uh, music is very important during the experience. And one, uh, you know, something else we include are various essential oils. I know this is, you know, I'm in California, so we can be a little bit woo-woo out here. <laughs> right. But yeah, we might have some lavender or sage or you know other different scents during the ketamine infusion itself. And yeah, we just really create the environment. And there's you know this concept of set and setting. And I don't know if you've ever heard of those two terms, set and setting, but yep. that refers to the mindset. Of someone receiving ketamine and the setting or the environment and so we just do our best to create the most appropriate mindset and the most appropriate setting for how therapeutic ketamine is used Um, because the setting is critical Uh, if someone is getting ketamine in a club or doing it at you know in a recreational setting that's very different from what we're doing it's it's 100 different so i just want to highlight yeah you got to have the right mindset have to have the right setting, uh, the right people as you're receiving the treatments. Yep. That all sounds very important. What
1: about there's been a lot of talk recently about psych- psychedelics for the treatment of depression, maybe PTSD as well, and psychedelics and guided trips. And is this, would you describe it in a similar way? I don't really know much about the guided trips, um, but it sounds fairly similar being internal, closing the eyes. And, and a guide, somebody next to them.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I've heard of the psychedelic trips and, you know, there's research being done by maps, uh, where they're using MDMA for, um, veterans, combat veterans with PTSD. Um, and I believe those are in, those are in the FDA trials and I believe it's FDA phase three, which is almost, you know, ready to be launched. Um, and then I know there are some studies that are happening out at Johns Hopkins uh, Center of Consciousness where they're using psilocybin. Um, so there's research that's happening. It's very fascinating, but you know the the results necessarily aren't out. And it's and all of these drugs, just to mention like MDMA or um, psilocybin, those are Schedule One drugs. Those are illegal drugs. So it's not something that you know, I can recommend, you know, go out there and do your psilocybin. It's like, no, these are illegal drugs. right? And, you know, it needs to be researched. It needs to be published. And the scheduling of these drugs actually need to be changed.
1: Right. Okay. Wow. Cool. So if people want to reach out to you, if they have questions, I do want to mention your website is really awesome. Um, very user-friendly And if you could mention that website, I don't want to get it wrong here so that people can go to that. Um, I know that you have a ton of information on there. You have some great informational videos that are really just short, very informational snippets. How do they get to that website?
0: Okay. So um, the listeners can go to www.resetketamine.com, and I'll spell that out. It's R-E-S-E-T ketamin com. so that's one option we also have a lot of content out and information on our twitter which is at reset ketamine also on our instagram which is at reset ketamine and our facebook page which is facebook.com slash reset ketamine and also you can go on youtube and just search for reset ketamine uh, yeah, we're just doing a lot of education about this, and I'd love for your listeners to, you know, learn more about this option.
1: Yeah, it's awesome. So, I know you have a lot of your own personal experiences of, you know, changing jobs and and figuring out what you needed to do for yourself and finding out your why, like you mentioned. So, if there's somebody at home who's really struggling, um, dealing with depression, maybe interested in ketamine. But what type of advice or suggestion would you give somebody who's just not able to, to really do much right now due to the fact that they're, they're struggling with their depression?
0: Um, I would say to this person out there struggling, I'm with you. I hear you. And although you and I have may have never met, um, I can understand your struggle and empathize with your struggle. I would tell that person that you know life is very short the time on earth is very short and um this too shall pass the, the the feelings you're feeling will pass it may take time it will pass and to sit with it and to ask for help yeah. as you go through this and i would finish with um you know one word uh, trust trust yeah and um you know Trust in the next step and just trust in the process of life.
1: Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Dr. Ko, uh, I really, really want to thank you for your time uh, to be on this interview on The Depression Files. It's been incredibly informative. Um, The work you do sounds incredible. You obviously um, are a wealth of knowledge. You obviously take your, your work very seriously and care for the entire patient, the holistic piece of, of medicine. And, uh, I just really appreciate it all. So thank you again for
0: taking the time to be on the show. Thank you, Al. It's been an honor talking with you and uh, appreciate all the listeners. If you've hung in there, hung in here for this long uh, period of time, thank you for listening. All right. Thanks again, Dr. Coe. Make sure you stay healthy. All right. Take care, Al.
1: Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the United States, you can text 741-741 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can go to suicide.org for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you enjoyed the show, please hit the like button. In addition, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.